because maybe you have been there before. Haven't you ever felt a situation where you just needed God to show up? You had parts of your life where you wanted God to speak, but he seemed to be quiet and inactive and distant. But you needed him to draw near and to speak up and to do something. And that is what the psalmist is recognizing, that this psalmist is facing a situation and God's people are facing a situation where it's not the type of situation that you would want to face with a distant God. You need a God that shows up, that's active, and that speaks and cares. And the psalmist is opening up with that very real human experience. So what is the situation the psalmist is facing? We see that in verses 2 through 5. See how your enemies growl, how your foes rear their heads. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation so that Israel's name is remembered no more. With one mind they plot together. They form an alliance against you. So here's the picture. God's enemies are conspiring against God's people, against those, the text says, that God cherishes. Notice the emphasis here. It's not, it's not the enemies are so much going up against me or us. Rather, the language is emphasizing that these enemies are going against God and his people. That's where the emphasis is. The point being is that this prayer isn't because the enemies are opposing some type of personal agenda of mine or some ambition of us. These enemies are trying to stop the very purposes of God and the very people whom he cherishes. So what are the enemies saying? They are coming together to destroy God's people, and the text says, so that they'll be forgotten. Their name would be wiped off of the earth, and with those people, God's name as well. The enemies are described as growling like a pack of wild animals, seeking to devour the psalmist and his people. There are other translations say that they're raging against God's people like a mob forming against the church in the book of Acts. That's the picture here. This is a, a group of people coming together with great force against God and his people. And the noise of these enemies is standing in contrast for the God who has been petitioned not to be quiet, but to show up and to do something about it. The alliance of enemies is detailed in some of the following verses, 6 through 8, in very, very uh, specific details with names and places. It's a list from the Old Testament, different folks of who had a thorny relationship with God's people in different circumstances. And the point of this specific list is to paint a picture of what God's people are up against. It's like, the picture would be like if every challenging person, every challenging situation and place that you've ever had throughout your life and your history all teamed up together to come against you and the purposes of a God that you're trying to promote. That's the picture here that's being painted in, the, in this psalm. It's, it is this people who have gotten caught up in their own sinful flesh, they're rebelling against God and his ways of love for the world, and then you and the people that you love that are caught up in God's love are in the crosshairs of that situation. So this is what the psalmist asks God to do when he shows up. Verses 9 through 12. Do to them as you did in Midian, as you did to uh, Sesera and Jabin at the river of Kishon, 
who perished at Endor and became like dung on the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and, and, and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zemula, who said, let us take possessions of the pasture lands of God. So now the psalmist is remembering other enemies of God's who said, let's take God's people out and make them ours and their place our possession. And the psalmist doesn't just recall this type of situation happening before, but also recalls that when these situations happened before, God did something about it, especially when God's people called out to him for help. And now that's what the psalmist is doing. He's remembering what God has done in the past and now saying, God, you've done this in the past. Will you show up and will you do it again? And it gets very specific. Did you get that petition in there to make the enemies like what? Dung on the ground. That's a prayer for your enemies, right? God, would you make them like the, the piles of dung that dog owners don't clean up on the boulevard? Would you make my enemies like that? That is the petition here, and it's recalling times that God has done that in the past. Now, there's all these different uh, places and people that are named in those verses, but it essentially is recalling two different stories from the book of Judges. That's what it's recalling. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon before I prayed, uh, some folks have already uh, been giving some feedback on what Old Testament book we should be doing. There's some folks that want Judges as the next Old Testament book. Uh, if you're freaking out because Revelation was violent and uh, Judges is, well, gives Revelation a run for its money, we're probably not going to do Judges. We're going to do something a little tamer than that. But for those of you that wanted a sneak peek into Judges, this psalm recalls two stories from the book of Judges. The first story, or one of the stories rather, is the story of Gideon. This is detailed in Judges 7 through 8. And if you're not familiar even with the background of the book of Judges, the, the book of Judges details this time in redemptive history where God's people have been freed from slavery. They're a nation who's weak and have no business beating anybody, but God is leading them through victory so that they can acquire a possession of a land. It's happening also during this time where they have no king. They don't really have a lot of like formal structure to be any nation that can be of any power against anyone. But it happened during this time where, where God's people are rising up, trying to get possession of this land. But it happened during the time, and this is what Judges says, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. One of the reasons you're wondering, like, why is Judges so, so bloody and violent is that it gets into very descriptive detail about how horrific it looks when a society does what is right in their own eyes. That's part of the purposes of those very uh, bloody stories that often pop up in the book of Judges. That's the background for Gideon and also the other example we're about to get, give. Gideon, that account happens in Judges 7 through 8. He's raised up a leader as a leader who faces forces that are about to make war against God's people. And this is many different peoples and nations that are coming together to attack God's people. Gideon is a reluctant leader. He does not want to face this powerful force, and he tests God, even though he hears the calling for God, from God for Gideon to go and lead God's people against this powerful force. He's not sure about it. And this is a very popular story, but he, he tries to test to make sure, God, do you really want me to do this? And you remember how he does it? With a piece of fleece. 
He puts it out one morning and says, God, if you're really telling me to do this, uh, if the peace piece of fleece is soaked with morning dew, but the ground around it is dry, then I know you're really talking to me. And God delivers on that interesting request. Well, then he doesn't buy it after the first time. He says, no, no, I'm going to do this again. But if the reverse happens, Lord, right, then I really know you want me to do this. If the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, then, then I know. And God grants this sign again. And then the story goes on that God intentionally reduces the force in the army under Gideon, even though he's facing a greater foe. And it's almost the story is already saying that the way that God is going to give his people victory is in a way that they can't take credit for themselves, but only God and God alone will be able to get the glory for the victory. The other story is a story about Deborah and Barak. This example comes from Judges 4 through 5. God's people are being threatened by another powerful king. This time his name is Jabin. And the king and the kingdom have been imposing Israel in this context for 20 years. The commander of this army, of the opposition army, is Caesarea, uh, who commands 900 chariots. That's one of the details given in Judges. And it's not just the size of 900 chariots that sticks out with that little detail. It's that Israel didn't have any type of military technology remotely close to facing chariots. That was the point of that little detail. It's like a nation who has guns who's going against a nation that just has swords. It's like a nation with tanks going against a nation that only has infantry. That's, that's the point that's being made. They, they have no way of beating 900 chariots. And it's against this force that God raises up Deborah and, and Bar Barak to face them. Deborah is not only the leader of Israel, but she's also a prophetess, and she speaks on behalf of God, and she commissions Barak to lead Israel against this more powerful force. He's reluctant to do it, and, and he says, I will only do this, Deborah, if you go with me to face this force. And she agrees and then gives this prophecy in the book of Judges. And she essentially says to him, as the commander of this army, the way this is all going to shake out is that you're not going to get the glory for this. God is going to get the glory for this. And the way that's going to happen is that God is going to defeat uh, uh, the other general, but not at your hands, but at the hands of a woman. So the general of God's army goes out and he ends up defeating the 900 chariots that he was facing. And the commander of that opposing army flees and Barak then pursues him, but as he's getting away, he can't quite get this opposing commander. He can't catch up to him and eventually he escapes finds a tent that belongs to an ally that's in alliance with his king. And then this is where things get interesting, all right? The wife of the guy who owns this tent that the opposing commander is sleeping in, he goes in there, he goes into the tent, and this wife, uh, uh, Jael, covers him, tucks him in because he's an exhausted commander, he needs to go to sleep, and gets him something to drink, and he falls asleep. But then what happens next is unexpected because you hear Deborah and she says that this commander is going to fall at the hands of a woman and maybe you're thinking, well, Deborah's going to do it. 
That's not how the story shakes out. Jael's going to do it. Jael's going to do it. And the way that she does that is that she goes in when he's sleeping, takes a tent peg and a hammer and slams it through his temple so that it goes through his head into the ground. That's just one bloody example of the types of situations and stories that happen in the book of Judges. And so this woman kills this powerful commander before Israel's leader can even arrive. And one of the things I want to pause and appreciate before I go on to the real point of that story is uh, Christian social media, which I, I, I follow because I'm a pastor and I'm interested in these things, has a heyday with this story in a way that's quite entertaining. So let me give you three examples of that, right? One meme, the first example here, says at the top, when I say I want a biblical wife, what people think I mean is I want a wife who is passive and subservient. What I really mean is I want a wife who's totally willing to drive a tent spike through a tyrant's head should the opportunity arise. <laughs> a little example of biblical womanhood here. Or if you're uh, uh, in a women's ministry, and maybe, uh, maybe this is what Trinity should consider as their next logo, here's another example. There. <laughs> a tattoo, a logo, if you wish, uh, if you want to use it for a good biblical womanhood, women's ministry at Trinity City Church, maybe that should be the, the thing that you choose. Example three is very different, but I think it's entertaining nonetheless. Uh, this comes from a, a formerly, yeah, I'll just show it to you. So this is from a Babylon Bee. They, they've gotten kind of partisan, but this is really funny. <laughs> See what it says there? JL lists her camping gear as gently used before she sells it on ancient Near Eastern Cra Craigslist or whatever, marketplace, right? Anyway, that was just good fun. It's, it's one of those things that I think one of the, the maybe um, uh, secondary point that could be made here is that when you think about the scriptures and like the, the various leaders that God raises up for his purposes, I think you need to appreciate how diverse those examples are. And especially, maybe this is just maybe the, the, the thing that I'm getting at with this. When you think about women being called to the purposes of God, don't just zone in on one, you know, Proverbs 31, Ephesians 5 type of example, but look at all the powerful and mighty ways that God has used women throughout the scriptures to accomplish his purposes. Maybe that's a little bit of a, uh, a secondary point. But that was just for free. That's not what you paid for. Let's get back to Psalm 83. What's the purpose of Psalm 83? Drawing attention to this uh, a story in the book of Judges. Deborah said that her general, the general of God's army, was not going to get the victory, but it was going to occur through a woman. And she was right. God defeated this foe in a way that only he gets the glory, in a way that he says that I was present there. It wasn't because some mighty guy that commanded my army did this. It was because I had to show up to face 900 chariots that you had no business beating, and yet it happened. And the same with the opposing general who fell in that tent. The story of the psalm the story that the psalm recalls is getting at that God can do this again for his glory, for the situation that he is facing. Verses 13 through 15. Make them the enemies like tumbleweed, my God, like the chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest or a flame sets the mountains ablaze, so pursue them with your tempest. 
and terrify them with your storm. To paraphrase that, that uh, set of verses, make them like dust that the wind blows away. Consume them like a Canadian fire consumes a forest. Pursue them uh, uh, like a terrible thunderstorm or tornado that is an expression of your judgment. Now again, you might be thinking at this point, man, there are so many people that I would like to pray these types of petitions against. May they become like dung. May they experience the thunderstorm of God's wrath, but not so fast. Because this prayer against God's enemies is not so much there to satisfy any type of personal vengeance you have against somebody. Certainly what we're seeing here is that when we pray against God's enemies, especially if they are advancing goals of injustice, we want those goals and those plans of wickedness to be stopped. That is certainly true. But there's more to this psalm and this prayer uh, for our enemies than that. And you can see that especially in verses 16 through 18. Cover their faces with shame, Lord, so that they will seek your name. May they ever be ashamed and dismayed. May they perish in disgrace. Let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, that you alone are the most high over all the earth. A couple important notes. Again, see, you, you continue to see this request that the enemies be put to shame, that God would frustrate their plans, and that they would perish in disgrace. Why? Because as we've been seeing, they are opposed to God, opposed to his righteousness, and opposed to his ways of love. So when people are coming together to, to create wickedness and injustice, part of our prayer is that God would stop those things. So if you want to pray against your enemies, one part of that prayer certainly is, is to pray that the unjust and wicked purposes of your enemies would lose and that God's ways of righteousness and love would prevail. Well, that's not the only part of this prayer. In addition, the psalmist is concerned about who gets the glory when this occurs. The point of God's unstoppable kingdom advancing and that any evil that is coming against that unstoppable kingdom, yes, yes we want that to be uh, uh, finished off, but we want that to happen in such a way that, 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 that God's people don't get the credit for it, but the enemies recognize that this is God who is God of heaven and earth, who is behind this, that stopped my wicked plans, and that they would recognize that it was God and God alone who acted. That the enemies of God would know the name of the Lord, that's what verse 18 says, and would recognize that he is sovereign, he is powerful, he is in charge over all the earth. So you also pray that your enemies would recognize the glory and power of God. Not, not recognize that you're a big deal, but recognize the glory and power of God and that God would even intercede in such a way that, that, that it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that the God of the universe showed up and did something about it and that the enemies would see that. But there's a third thing going on here, and you can really see it in the second half of verse 16, right? There's more than just recognizing God's power and glory that's probably being requested here. That verse 16 says, Cover their faces with shame, Lord, so that they will seek your name. This phrase here is more likely... Uh, a little bit more than recognizing God's power and purposes, but this is language of conversion. 
which entails these enemies acknowledging what they are doing is evil and against God's ways and that they would turn from those ways and seek the ways of God's love, righteousness, and mercy. This is a request for your enemies who are caught up in their own sinful flesh and the ways of evil to be turning from those things and transformed by grace. So a third way to pray for our enemies that we are seeing in this psalm is to pray for their conversion, which includes, it doesn't mean conversion does not include getting them off the hook for what they have done. Conversion means that they turn from their ways, recognize what they've done is sinful and evil, bear the consequences for what they've done in, the, in wronging other people, but then by recognizing their own evil that they would throw themselves upon the mercy of God and actually be transformed from within by grace, not forced to on the outside by power. That's another prayer that's, uh, that the psalmist is is, is petitioning God for. We must remember when we pray for our enemies that our ultimate struggle isn't against other people, but against, as, Psalm, or as Ephesians 6.12 says, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual powers of evil. The unholy trinity in the scriptures is sin, death, and the devil who constantly tries to deceive humanity and turn us against one another and against God and his ways of love. And the church, like Israel in the Old Testament, exists, God's people exist to restore true worship among all peoples and to restore humanity to a life of love. And not all people, and we know this, not all people turn from sin and wickedness to seek God, yet we need to pray for it, even if it is our enemies. We pray for those hostile to us and the church and the ways of righteousness. We pray for their plans to fail, for them to recognize the powerful glory of God, but also to seek God's ways and his mercy. And just like this psalm remembers how God has stopped the advance of the powers of darkness before, we as Christians can remember how God has done this in Christ in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were being held in slavery by their fear of death. And it is in the death and resurrection of Christ that Jesus crushed the head of evil, took away the sting of death, and one day, all those threats will be thrown away forever. And we pray for that, including uh, for our enemies.